Look, we want to make a movie. This can become a cultural phenomenon. The likes we've never seen before. Well, then we better get started. I know how to make this film. It's a metaphor for the American dream. This is not just some gangster film. It makes us look like a joke, and that's bad for business. This is a story about family. It's Shakespeare. Agencies won't touch us. It's epic. You want to be a producer? Bang, borrow, steal, do whatever it takes. Gangster movies are dead. We will snuff out the hatred. If I say I'm going to handle something, I'm going to handle it. And the prejudice. You're still going to try and make this thing? Sinatra wants us to shut the picture down. You got brains, and you got balls. Try using What is our opening line? I believe in America. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of Little Gold Men, brought to you by the Paramount Plus series, The Offer. I'm LaToya Ferguson. And I'm Joe Reed, and today we're going to be discussing the 10-part series, The Offer, about the making of the classic movie, The Godfather, which turned 50 this year. LaToya, are you ready to feel old? Uh, The (laughs) Godfather was only eight years before it was born. (laughs) Uh, Always ready to feel old, Joe. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, Joe, later we'll hear your conversation with Matthew Good, who plays Robert Evans on the series. Uh, There are a lot of major Hollywood figures with roles on the offer, but Robert Evans is really crucial to the series and to understanding how The Godfather was even made. Joe, can you start by telling us who Robert Evans is and why he still looms so large? Yeah, so uh, Robert Evans was a film producer. He was the head of Paramount Pictures from 1967 to 1974, during which time they made The Odd Couple, Harold and Maude, Chinatown, Rosemary's Baby, Serpico, all these really like definitional movies of particularly that very crucial era in Hollywood that is romanticized, I think, quite a bit, that sort of new Hollywood era. And of course, chief among that era is the first two Godfather movies in 1972 and 74. Evans has this sort of self-created legacy, this sort of self-mythology about him. And and this has lived on through his memoir, The Kid Stays in the Picture, which was made into a 2002 documentary of the same name. So LaToya, given that Evans is such this like larger-than-life figure, Before going into the offer, how much of that myth of Robert Evans were you aware of? Uh, I was aware of uh, the myth of Robert Evans, as it were. Uh, The Kid Stays in the Picture, that documentary came out around the time I started really getting into film uh, in my young age. So I I was aware. And again, you named these amazing movies that he, like, his name was attached to. It's just, you have this larger-than-life like image of him, even without knowing the man, then you read the book uh, and then you see the documentary. You're like, wow. And then you watch the offer and uh, Matthew Good really captures the whirlwind you would have to be to be a, p- a person like Robert Evans. 
Yeah, I feel like this is one of those understood the assignment performances that Matthew Good gives in this show where it's like the task in front of you is to somehow live up to this persona that if you've seen in any way, whether it's the kid stays in the picture or like go on to YouTube and find any interview that he's given throughout his entire life, like this is a big persona. And Matthew Good really had to step up to the plate and deliver. And I really do think he does. It's not just the voice, although he does approximate the voice really well. That's sort of the first thing you notice about Evans after you'll watch something like The Kid Stays in the Picture. It's just like, it's this almost a parody of a Hollywood, like a slick Hollywood producer who's got the lingo down, who knows everybody. He'll put you in touch with Ryan O'Neill and Robert Redford, and he's married to Ali McGraw. And Matthew Good gets all of that, all of that sort of uh, artifice about him, that like this man created about himself, while also, and I think this is also a thing that the show does well, is it sells this almost fantasy, which isn't to say that it wasn't the truth, but this fantasy of the Hollywood producer who is super slick, but the buck stops at art sort of all the time with this guy, that he ultimately really does just want to make these great movies, and The Godfather ends up being that. Yeah, a uh, discussion of a lot of uh, having a seat at the table and the American dream in the offer. Of course, talking about The Godfather and its story is selling, but that's also a big part of the Hollywood part of the story. And that's a big thing with someone like Robert Evans. Albert Ruddy, played by Miles Teller, he gets to see the table. He gets to see firsthand what it's like to live this dream. And Robert Evans makes it seem like the most amazing thing in the world, but he also makes it seem like the worst at times, uh, as we see as things go on. It's an interesting sort of twist on the, uh, not exactly like a rags to riches, but like this sort of like, where did this guy come from? He came from unlikely beginnings. Except in this case, it's like Al Ruddy came from like, a job at the Rand Corporation, which is such an odd, like, it's not like he was this, like, kid on the farm or something like that. The Rand Corporation, such an odd, you know, came out of nowhere story. He produced Hogan's Heroes and kind of made a little bit of a reputation for himself there and then decided he wanted to get into the movies. And the show is filtered through his perspective, this idea of this seemingly unlikely producer being the guy in this group of a lot of unlikely characters, right? Puzo, Mario Puzo, the author of The Godfather, is painted as this guy who, like, owed a lot of money and really needed to, like, make a deal. And Francis Ford Coppola was coming off of a flop and he needed to do something. And this movie sort of brought all these guys together in this very sort of Hollywoody way. Yeah, it was a, a redemption story, uh, if you will, where they all kind of just, they put everything into it. So they, they needed to make it work, and it, clearly it did. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, I think Teller's good in this, too. It's, in many ways, the less flashy of the big performances. He's Ruddy is the sort of the name you maybe don't know in this story that involves Bob Evans and, and Francis Ford Coppola. Al Pacino's a character in this. There are, you know, endless mobsters in this. And so you look at Ruddy and you're like, oh, who's that guy? I guess he's the guy who, like, walked up to the stage and accepted the Academy Award when The Godfather won. But he's sort of the name you don't know. And I think a lot of the offer seems to be about, you know, get to know this guy, get to know the role that he played in 
He was sort of the guy at the center of the maelstrom, right? He was the one who had to deal with Gulf and Western and Coppola and Evans and keep the plates spinning. I think uh, Teller was great. He was a great grounding force, too, when you have a character like Evans. And just, honestly, everyone else is kind of, uh, they're all extremes, whether they're in the mafia or they're the head of the network. You have uh, Colin Hanks' character, who is a fictional character. And he is uh, just an absolute drip. He is the at the, the very end of the spectrum on being an absolute drip. You need kind of a, a grounded center, even though he is technically a dreamer as well. Yeah, he's the suit of suits in all of this. In this, again, in this show where even the guy from Gulf and Western, the um, Bluedorn, who, uh, played by Bern Gorman, who is also, I think, very good in this. But he's also somebody who, if you can make the right pitch to him about the idea that we can make a great film, you'll sell him. And Colin Hanks is the guy who is probably the hardest sell on that. There's that scene towards the end in one of the later episodes where he sits in on the the marketing meeting for the art materials and is just like infuriating. You really just almost want to like throttle him and he's steamrolling Peter Bart and all this stuff and he doesn't, he wants to sell this like horrifying looking poster of, of uh, the film. And, uh, but yeah, this is, it gets to that kind of art versus commerce thing. And again, it does feel like a little bit of a fantasy where it's just like, oh, in this current era of art versus commerce where it's seeming maybe a little bit more of an uphill battle that you look back at that and you're just like, they all really wanted to make this great movie that we all remember very well. It makes sense why uh, he'd be playing a character that is basically an amalgamation of every like artless, just money-driven exec, because there's certainly not just one person who was probably against this movie getting made and other great movies getting made just because they didn't understand it. There's no point where you're like, oh, so what did Lapidus ever, you know, actually get made that was good? They never say that because that's not the point. The point is just that he is the enemy of art. Right. Well, and the other force that didn't want this movie made, at least for a good while, was the mob. And that's the other strain in this, is you get a lot of these little anecdotes about how the mafia's participation, let's say, in the, in this movie getting made is, you know, comes at it in some interesting ways. I liked the scene where we get Frank Sinatra as a character in this, who is like super, super opposed to this movie being made because the Johnny Fontaine character, even when the book came out, everybody knew that this was a very thin gloss on Frank Sinatra and it doesn't make him look good. So he and like Mario Puzo nearly get in a fight in the restaurant in the one scene. Puzo sort of like makes a grab for the fork on the table, which um, I thought was interesting. You get the guy who played Luca Brazzi in the film was this mob enforcer who also in real life was a former pro wrestler, which I thought was pretty funny as I was sort of digging into this. And ultimately, Ruddy has to, again, balance all of that out and make sure that they take out all references to like the word mafia in in that. So in a way, that's sort of part of the legend of that movie too, right? It's art and life converging. Which it's it's interesting. Obviously, you want to appease the, uh, the mob by not, you know, including mafia. But it actually makes for a better story. If you're trying to tell, you know, this is just a story about a family and this specific family does this. It makes sense not to just be like mafia, mafia. Even though they did say it was like one one line says mafia, but still, it, it, they're they're not going to refer to themselves as you know, 
criminals and mobsters. Right. Well, and that was always Coppola's vision, too, was this idea that, like, we're not making a mob movie, we're making a movie about a family, and we're also making sort of a a commentary on capitalism in America and all this stuff. And ultimately, God, it's been a little bit since I've seen The Godfather. What What is, where does The Godfather sort of sit with you in terms of, did you watch it growing up? Did you sort of come to it later on after you started uh, working in movies? Yeah, I watched it in college because I, I uh, studied film in college and I uh, re- understood it and respected it as like one of the great, you know, American films, uh, part of the great canon. And I think it's also one of those films that holds up in terms of that. It's not just an example of like a lionized older movie that possibly, you know, doesn't hold up. I think it's still a great film. Uh, that and part two as well. I, I would. I didn't get the chance to rewatch uh, preparing for this, but I, I would love to rewatch it. Absolutely. This was a movie I watched in high school for the first time. It was one of those sort of first older movies that I really got into. And growing up, uh, I went to this like all boys Catholic school or whatever. And the movies that I really was interested in, not any of my classmates or friends were. And that was a movie that we could connect on was everybody would sort of, and they'd show it on TV all the time too. And you'd, you know, I could talk about it with my dad, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's a universal thing, which is exactly what they're saying as they're trying to sell the movie in the offer. So uh, the stories from behind the scenes of Making the Godfather make up a big chunk of the series. And you get stuff like, Justin Chambers, the, you know, Grey's Anatomy star, uh, Justin Chambers is playing Marlon Brando. You get Al Pacino and all this stuff about uh, um, Anthony Ippolito plays Al Pacino. Uh, All this stuff about the resistance, all of this resistance to Pacino, all of the resistance, which boiled really much down to he's short. There were so many mentions of just like, he's too short. You can't let him on screen. You can't do it. What of those sort of behind the scenes anecdotes from the making of the movie stood out to you from watching The Offer? I think it was the one about Al Pacino. Just Evans, just he just didn't want him. He just didn't want him. I think I also read that he just like he also didn't like his face too. Yeah. Oh, all the most like petty, seemingly inconsequential stuff. Like you never think about that with Pacino now coming at it from our perspective, where we've you know known him as like this major star for decades, and it's just like oh, he was just this like short theater actor who they didn't want playing a war hero because they didn't think that's what a war hero looked like in a movie. Well, as yeah. you know, war heroes all look like Rambo. We know yeah. this. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Did you, I loved the dinner table scene. I don't know if you what you thought of that one. The one where Coppola gathers them all, all the cast together before they start filming. And in the midst of this dinner, they sort of like drift into their characters and start behaving as the Corleone family. I thought that was, you know, an interesting anecdote to sort of pass on. Mm-hmm. Well, I think a lot, especially when you're telling a story from this era of Hollywood, a lot of it is the magic of the pictures, you know, and I think a scene like that is like the epitome of the magic of the pictures, even when it's technically it's just, you know, real life dinner, but they're all getting into character. It's like the one example of method acting where people aren't just huge assholes. Right, exactly. Yes. The scene where Pacino shoots the the other mobster and the cop in the restaurant, the sort of the big turn point scene of that movie and uh, Charlie Bluthorn from Gulf and Western is there sitting there watching them film it and he goes to congratulate Pacino on a job well done after and Pacino's still in character and he just scares the shit out of this guy this fairly like you know blustery executive from Gulf and Western yeah and I I did like Charlie just because it's he 
wasn't against the movie when he knew it was good. He obviously, he's, when he saw something that was bad, he's like, well, this is bad. Like, he's seeing dailies. Dailies aren't good. But when he sees it with the color timing, he's like, oh, this is what it's supposed to look like. This makes sense now. He doesn't have, the, like, the terminology and the understanding, but when he actually sees the finished product, he's like, oh. Or when he sees Pacino up front, he's like, oh, I get it now. Which it's, it's, it was not that he was uh, an unshakable, unflappable exec, which was uh, necessary. Right. You could sell him. Evans could give a great speech about the movies and you could sell him. Again, it's this fantasy of art somehow being able to triumph because it's good enough. And, you know, maybe we've lost a little bit of faith in that nowadays. But uh, yeah, no, I love that. I love that scene. While Albert is uh, the central, like, point of view character, I think really it's Betty who is his receptionist assistant, honestly, producing partner, it seems. She takes that journey right along with him. And I think she's also, like, you're seeing a story of her coming up in this business as well, like her growth as well. Yeah, I think Juno Temple's really good in that role. I mean, like, it's no surprise these days. She's seemingly, you know showing up everywhere on TV these days and she's really killing it. But that's a character who, I don't know, I'm interested to see what your perspective on on the character is because it's one of those things where the character has to be grounded in that time, which was still, Mm -hmm. you know, institutional sexism and, you know, she's subject to other characters' attentions. Bluedorn is sort of constantly trying to get her to go to drinks with him and while he's not being overtly harassy to her, you can still tell that there's this veneer of the kind of attention that could tip into something unsavory at any time. And watching that character negotiate these male spaces, I thought was effective without tipping the scale into kind of girl boss territory without, you know, using a buzzword, but yeah. I was going to make it like a His Girl Friday comparison, basically, like a snappy and quippiness. I don't think it teeters over the edge too much, where it's just like, uh, I'm not buying this. And it's it's not even just like, you know, her relationship with Charlie, which could obviously, it seems like it could go south, but instead it just seems like they enjoy each other's companionship and she somehow has the higher ground. It's also her, her relationship with Caesar, who's a mobster, who's just who really just respects her and likes her. And, but she knows this, like, this is a dangerous world that she does not want to get involved in. She doesn't want to be a mob wife. Right, right exactly. Yeah, she does, has no uh, aspirations towards that. That character played by Bobby Cannavale's son, Jake, who, once you know that fact and you see him, you're just like, oh, well, yes, of course. Um, yeah, and he's really adorable. And there's, you know, a little, you know, he's definitely a mobster. He's definitely somebody who you know, will beat the crap out of somebody for trying to steal her purse or something like that. And there's a reason why she sort of has, a, you know, a wall up with him a little bit. But they have some really good scenes together, I thought. And ultimately, she's sort of a little bit of a secret ingredient in this story. Again, she's a character, she's a name who you don't know from the legend of this movie. And yet you come out of the show and you're just like, oh, like, you know, Betty had that meeting with Joe Colombo. She got she got it done, and she was uh, again. Girl Friday is a good a good uh, term for that. Yeah. Uh, let's bring it back to Robert Evans, though, because he's again. I think I really feel like he is the superstar of this show, and 
We see at the end of the series where, and we're, you know, past the Oscars and they're already talking about making the sequel and Ruddy goes off to make the the Longest Yard with Burt Reynolds and all of this. And it sort of leaves us with this question, I think, this sort of open-ended question of like these larger-than-life figures, I think Evans in particular, like, is that a type that we just are never going to see again, this sort of larger-than-life figure who ultimately his legacy that he's left us with is like, it's just the movies, right? It's all of these really good movies. And I don't know, do you grapple at all with that kind of a legacy of a character like Evans? It seems like, especially nowadays, it's impossible to be that kind of magnanimous type of character without it being put on, like without you trying to be like someone like Robert Evans or someone from back in the day, you know? It it seems like people would be, they're like, oh, you're putting on a show or it's uh, you're coked out of your mind. Those are the two things people would think, correct? Right, right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, basically. Those are your assumptions. Yeah. That's, that's part of the reason why people romanticize this era of Hollywood. It's just because these characters did exist. These were real people. And it'd be amazing to have that, uh, you know, nowadays, but uh, I don't know if those can exist also without all of the the seediness that comes along with those kind of people too, you know? Yeah, that's the thing is just sort of, it's that idea of you give somebody enough power and, you know, unchecked power and what comes of it. And I think one of the things that makes the offer really interesting and sort of allows us to romanticize it without lingering on the problematic aspects of it is, all of these people who had power, whether it's Evans or Bluedorn or Ruddy or Coppola even or whatever, to deg- whatever degree they had power with, they were all grappling with each other to get this movie done. And they were all at different points sort of at cross purposes with each other. So they were, you know, they each sort of like checked each other at some point in trying to get this movie made. And so you don't really linger on this idea of, like, Evans the all-powerful, right? And for as much as that's his legacy, is this being this powerful Hollywood executive, half of that's him mythologizing himself, right? The, the show allows you to see behind that curtain a little bit, see his vulnerability, see how much the end of his marriage to Ally McGraw was really devastating for him. And again, it goes back to Matthew Good and just giving that really, really fantastic performance. Absolutely. So, Joe, uh, let's hear your conversation with Matthew Good. Yeah, let's do it. I wanted to start off as, as perhaps the most obvious question, but I wanted to talk about the voice, the Robert Evans voice, because it really is such a big part of him as a sort of persona. And obviously, it really comes across in the show. How much of a priority was it for you in terms of finding the voice? And then did finding the voice help you find the character? Or was it the other way around, maybe? It's the big question, really, isn't it? I mean, so when when I got told by my agents that I was doing this job, because it was quite late on in the casting, and for whatever reason, and, and and so it was quite terrifying. I was like, what, what, what are you talking about? I haven't spoken to him, I haven't auditioned for this. And I was like, and he's quite, I don't think I'm anything like him. The, the immediate panic settles, you know, settles in. And, 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 I, and I watched the kids' days in the picture like years and years before, and I absolutely loved it. Um, but I knew that, that 
that wasn't going to be such a great tool for me because, I mean, it's still Bob, but it's, it's him in his 70s, so he has slightly different rhythms and also... He's almost sort of become a caricature of himself by that point, and I don't mean that. I don't mean that in any bad way, Bob. <laughs> um, so, but there's a there's a there's a wealth of incredible interviews from the 1970s that's on YouTube, and I could just go down wormhole after wormhole, and 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 so that was great. And bearing in mind, obviously, that when you see those interviews, anyone who's being interviewed is putting a certain version of themselves across. It's not them per se and if i'd done done it like he is in the interviews i think it would have been quite a boring performance but the great thing about the offer and certainly as far as the arc of my character is you know he's all over the place and, and he was a very eccentric man in, in many ways and, and very gregarious and and i just particularly i love him i think he's he's a wonderful part to play but so i so you in episode six i have this like three-page monologue and monologues are very, very useful because no one else is interjecting. And so you get a good whack at how you would go about rhythmically shaping that sort of landscape of, of how he speaks. And so I just went, oh, I listened to these recordings hundreds and hundreds of times and I started to send versions of that monologue to Dexter Fletcher, who was uh, directing episodes one and two. And he would go, I like it. Uh, yeah, mate, that's great. Yeah, you can push it a bit more. Try this, try this. And um, after a while, you know, it took me a couple. It took me weeks and weeks of of being quite scared. And then suddenly, you've got to start shooting. And and and, I, and Dexter gave me a lot of the confidence. And obviously, when once you put, once you've done all that work, and you 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 start to feel it happening slowly but surely. And I felt like I was turning into Bob. And, and also I spent, because of COVID, I was trapped in a hotel room most of the time. So I'd often just be messing around and improvising stuff that's just, I hate you, casting, man. What are you talking about? Don't get swiped with me, pal. You know, we'd have these conversations <laughs> <laughs> together, um, which is great because it's stuff that's not in the in the script. And I'm, a, I'm a big advocate of you should be able to do any line, right. any, any word. Right. It doesn't matter if it's not in the script. Otherwise, otherwise you don't have them. Um but once, yeah. So once, once we had the clothes as well, and the and the famous the bins, sure, of huge, course, the huge glasses. That was like another layer of armor, which, you know, I could look in the mirror and go, "Well, I, I, I do sort of like there's, there's the essence of him there." And then, and then Dexter gave me this great confidence because sometimes we'd shoot stuff and he'd just be like, "Okay, let's just get rid of the lines and let's just let's see what happens," even if it's just as an exercise. And sometimes it made it in, sometimes it didn't. And he gave me that, that sort of ready brick glow of, of confidence, and 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 I guess also you know you start working with we've got an inc- I think a, a super talented ensemble, and so you're nothing without the people that are around you that that are bestowing you with you are the head of Paramount, and also like the, we have this the character of filming actually at Paramount, which which really places my character front and center. So. All of those things start together, but you still are terrified. <laughs> sure. It's a horrible mess. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the sort of wealth of information that we have about Evans. Obviously, the documentary, The Kid Stays in the Picture, the Loads memoir, all yeah. these books, all these sort of like uh, YouTube uh, interviews and stuff like that that are available out there. Was there any particular sort of story or anecdote either by Evans or about Evans that stood out to you when you were preparing and sort of helped inform how to how to play the character? It wasn't any particular anecdote. It was meeting once I, because I, I, I suppose I had about a, 
about a month and a half, I think, when I found out I got the job, and then we started working. And then I would, so at the beginning, I would be up at the studio and I'd meet people up at Paramount who had known Bob. And so you, you would just, it would be their anecdotes about how kind he was. You know, he could talk to anyone. He used to, oh, my friend used to buy jewellery off him. Or, or, or Sorry, the other way around. My, he used to buy jewellery off my friend. Or he got his flowers from here. And th- there was always a sense of outside of work. He was so charming and brilliant with everyone. But there were also the, you'd hear the stories about how he was literally hairdryering someone down the phone as well. Like he was prone to moments of, of extreme passion because there was a lot of pressure that running a studio. It's not just, you know, this is about the making of one film, but he was running nine films at a time. And that's, it's not great. It's not great for holding down a marriage. Um, Sure. So so it was those little bits. And obviously there's a huge amount of detail in the scripts. And so every day it was all one giant sort of learning curve. And, and eventually it's like anything. It's like, it's so funny to me that people, have sort of leveled the, the, the this is an ina- inaccurate portrayal of, of what actually happened. And I'm like, nobody knows what happened. Like, do you think that Al Ruddy told everyone about the, what his dealings were with the mob? I'm pretty sure he kept a lot of that stuff to himself because otherwise, otherwise panic stations would have started to sort of happen. So I think, I mean, that's typically Bob as well, isn't it? It's like, there's, there's always three versions. There's, there's your version, there's my version, and there's the truth. And maybe this will, maybe someone will go, right, we actually need to have a definitive documentary done on The Godfather now. Maybe that's what will spring up from all this. But Man, um, I definitely love it. You do have to sort of navigate the landscape a little bit for yourself because it's not a dot to dot. I mean, can you imagine how the, the royal family feel about The Crown? It's all based on real events. But anytime any, any scribe puts pencil to paper, it's all fiction, really, as much as you, as you wanted to get this in. We have no idea how the royals spoke to each other we've no idea really and so it's it's all a, a guess and i think um and i think nikki toscano and russell and michael they did such an amazing job with piecing this all together and um and i feel like it's as good a version as you're gonna see yeah uh, obviously the godfather looms so large in the culture also like within within the industry and also outside of the industry it's yeah. sort of this great movie that kind of ties everybody together, everybody sort of has some sort of knowledge of it. As you're making the offer, was there anything about the story about making The Godfather that surprised you or, or about how Hollywood sort of operated in general around that period? Um, well, I, sort of, I mean, you sort of hear the myths of what, you know, the castings. And so there were some of the stories about, you know, how Brando got cast and, and, and also that they didn't want Pacino, um, etc. So those are sort of things that you just a folklore that everyone knows about really but it was just i guess the the involvement of the mob which is a contentious point in, as i was saying to you earlier on yeah and actually the the great friendship that struck up that was struck up between al ruddy and and colombo but ultimately what i love about it is obviously it's a love story for, about al and 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 the godfather but one of the things that i like most is that it, it turns the tables on and puts the producer in the in the starring role for once and it just shows you I mean, obviously, this is hilarious, but it's because it's one of the most difficult. It should never have been made. This film, really, you can't imagine all the trials and tribulations that were that Al had to get over. And bearing in mind, he was the sole producer on this. Right, right. I mean, that's remarkable considering these days there's ten producers and nineteen execs on these sorts of things. So he'll go down in history as surely as one of the great physical producers of all time. But it just shows you how difficult it is to get anything made, really. 
Definitely. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned the scene in episode six, the big sort of the pitch to Gulf and Western that Evans yes. gives. And it convinces them not to sell the studio. You see him giving this performance almost as if he is in that scene an actor. And it ultimately turns around this major conglomerate. And can you talk about how you approach that scene and this maybe this pressure to live up to this moment that feels almost larger than life in the telling of it? I think that's the great thing about Bob is the fact that from a sort of modern standpoint, you can sit there and you, he does seem like a caricature of himself, you know, this, this older thing. But but considering how he became the youngest studio head of all time, he was a very smart man. And, and one of the things I, if you look at the, 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 lev, like the, the actual films that he produced in his sweet spot in history, things like Harold Maud, and, which would never get made now, you know, and so he was a real tastemaker and, Originally, that speech is lifted because originally he said he made a movie of that and 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 he had it directed by Mike Nichols. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is on the internet. It's on YouTube. So what you're picking up on there is this. It was a performance that he gave for the Gulf and Western board originally. But now I'm I'm just in the room and there's (laughs) and he's taking a whole a whole load of cocaine on the way out to New York and, <laughs> and things, things are quite different to how uh-huh. he did it originally. But, uh-huh. but there is that level of like, it's, it's, he's like a t- trapeze artist or a tightrope walker or whatever. Like it's all on the line and I have to deliver. And, and this is the way he goes about it. And he's, you know, he, he rolls and he's, he's very convincing and he's a good, he's a great salesman and he's a, he, what a pitch. Oh, um, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And actually in fairness, he had just, you're about to get rid of him and, and, and Paramount. I've just made you $100 million with Love Story. Yeah. And the fact, and that's not going to buy me any extra time. I mean, it's like, I think there was a, a little bit of, a, it was a, there's a lot of pain and hurt. And he was kind of incredulous about that and yet pragmatic. Yeah. Uh, the one thing that sort of struck me about the offer was for as much wrangling as there is with the executives and, and Blue Dorn and, and even Lapidus, who is so much of an obstacle, the Colin Hanks character is such an obstacle for so many things. But what impressed me was that at the end of the day, the art really did stand paramount, no pun intended, for um, for everybody that they ultimately all wanted to make something really great. And yes. did you find something romantic about that, about that notion that even these sort of, you know, very business-minded people and, you know, producers and of everybody else just had this idea that making a great piece of art was worth it? Absolutely, you know, there's there's so much romance in this, and bearing in mind that they, 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 it's a bit like Charlie Bluedon was, like, you know, he came as an immigrant, you know, and he built up this company, and so, and like he never expected to be in the movies, and like, and he and he had a vision, and and he was charmed by by Evans as much as anybody, and and it's the sheer the weight of the struggle, and from this really. It, like incredulous situation you get the phoenix of the flames finally and it's about it's about francis sticking to his guns and 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 not you know not compromising on so many things when when surely he should have compromised earlier and that put al in such a difficult place with bob and and it's everybody struggling and inch by inch trying to get to a place and yeah and that's the great thing about movies there is a great romance there it's a real blue collar job sure as well i know what people's 
versions of of a movie set is and the movie like but like there's 400 people on set living living check to check and right and, yeah. and, and like we're there at four in the morning and we go home at nine at night and then if you're the actors who who don't work the hardest probably on the sets you know then we have to do our homework and this goes on and it's a family and i mean it's a bit like a you know, it's, I mean, the, the, the Godfather is all about family, but my God, filmmaking is one of the great, one of the great honors, even sure. during COVID, is that, and the older you're, the older you're in it, you, you recognize bits of family that you've been with before as well. Yeah. So you get to come back together again and, and, and to work on something that is so revered as, as the, you know, to be even connected to the Godfather is, is pinch me sort of stuff, really. Sure, of course. And um, I think if you, if you don't find this business romantic, and painful at the best of times, then um, then you're probably a producer. No, <laughs> <laughs> then you're then you're in your own business. Yeah. I wanted one uh, last question. Yes, and uh, without you can get into whatever kind of specifics you want to. Have you ever been part of a production that approached even approached the levels of chaos that? Were there on The Godfather? Were there parts of the offer that you were like, that kind of reminds me of a thing that I went through on another film? The offer was a very, very well-oiled machine, my friend. <laughs> um, but I have been on some very chaotic stuff before. Yeah. yeah, of course. And that is part of the joy of of still being in the industry, I guess. Because even... It doesn't mean because you're more technologically advanced and you have a bigger budget that, that, that chaos can't ensue. You can always have Lost in the Mancha happening at any given moment. Sure. You know? Cause, cause, and I'm sure that would be underneath the, the insurance-wise, it would be under the uh, acts of God. But again, that's one of the reasons that keeps, it keeps you coming back is our job is to execute on time, on the day, on that very moment, as much as possible, blah, blah, blah. And you, you're always under the pump. But sometimes the greatest art comes from when from the greatest struggle. Yeah. I don't know why it is, but if you had if you had fifty million dollars, fifty million dollars, no one makes those films anymore. <laughs> God, those were those were the best films, the fifty million dollar films. Sure, of course. Um, you wouldn't. Shawshank Redemption wouldn't get made now. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know why it is. But yeah, if if you have all the money in the world and you got oh, for some some reason that that just whatever that bit of magic is comes from comes from <laughs> the bit where everyone is thinking they're going to die. <laughs> well, that's a great way to, uh, to end the interview, Matthew. Thank you so much for... Uh... And we never heard from Matthew again. <laughs> <laughs> but then we get the 10-part series investigating what happened to Matthew. So yes. it goes on and on. Starring yeah, yeah. Miles Teller. <laughs> exactly. There you go. Thanks for listening to this special episode of Little Gold Men. You can find me on Twitter, at LaFergs, as well as my podcasts about vampire television shows, The Empire Diaries, and Angel on Top. And you can find me on Twitter, at Joe Reed. The Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. And you can listen to my podcast, This Had Oscar Buzz, where we talk about uh, Oscar films gone awry, uh, wherever else you find podcasts. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and you can stream The Offer on Paramount+. Paramount+. 